What is SoftBank? A really difficult question to answer these days. The telecoms group, it's a semiconductor group. It's now more of an investment group. A huge and very aggressive hedge fund. It is the corporate expression of one man. A journey for people to ride alongside the mind of Masayoshi-san. It's like a jigsaw puzzle. Right at the center of it, you've got Masayoshi Son. The 63-year-old founder of SoftBank. He's like no other chief executive in Japan. He is not afraid of taking risks. He's a risk-addicted billionaire. He's not afraid to make extremely aggressive bets. If we were in a casino, he'd be the guy doubling down every time he wins with his money. If he's on the blackjack table, just double down, double down, double down. He never takes the chips off the table, and he just lets it ride as far as he can go. He's exploring ways to become rich, exploring ways to change the world. He identified technology as the way to do that. In the next 10 years, I would co continue to invest more and more. He's driven by power, the desire to make SoftBank one of the world's biggest companies. He's not really into inventing things, so it's not like SoftBank creates products. He's more investing in vision. If you go in the room and ask for $100 million, and he says, well, I was going to give you $500 million, so why do you only need 100 If you don't have a good answer for the 500 you're not getting the money. He gets frustrated with us journalists. He gets frustrated with investors who don't value his company as highly as he thinks it should be valued. He's small, physically small, and he's calm. What lies beneath is this vigorous shark. Masayoshi Son is born and raised in Japan. He left Japan to study in the US. He came back to Japan using the money from a patent that he sold of an electronic translator. He set up SoftBank in 1981 as a software distributor. His breakthrough deal came in 2000 when he invested $20 million in Alibaba just a year after the Chinese company was created. To turn 20 million into 100 billion and more, that doesn't happen. You know, even the best venture capitalists in the world who put a sliver of money in Airbnb or a sliver of money in Google. They never have hit anything like that. He's a kind of film script version of what happens if we all went back in time and invested in Facebook on the day that it was invented and so on. When the market turns on SoftBank, the thing that keeps the market confident that it's still worth something is that he's still clutching onto that Alibaba stake. Even through the pandemic, we've seen Alibaba only get stronger and its share price go higher. We all want to be that investor. He actually was that investor. What if it was a fluke? Did he just get lucky on Chinese e-commerce? You come back to the puzzle. Is he the world's most astute tech investor? Or is he the luckiest guy on the planet? He listened to Jack Ma's speech for five minutes and he saw the twinkle in his eyes and decided to invest in the company. I could smell, <laughs> smell. him, right? We're the same animal. You believe in the future. He probably has the biggest guts in the world <laughs> on doing investment. Yeah. Right. Very few people in the world have that courage. Uh, too much God, sometimes I lose a lot of money. I know. <laughs> <laughs> he had so much conviction in Jack Ma and what the potential of Alibaba was that all these times that it was in the money, he never took a penny off the table. He just wanted to ride it. And he's been proven right. It's one thing to find Alibaba, which is already impressive, but it's another to have the conviction to stick with it. The problem is that last autumn, Jack Ma made a pretty ill-advised speech in Shanghai, and it seemed to take a swipe at regulators. The next thing we know, the share price of Alibaba's taking a really, really big hit. 
The big problem there is that SoftBank is a 25% holder of Alibaba stock, and where goes Alibaba goes SoftBank. It's kind of hard to describe SoftBank in one word. It has so many pieces. Its investment portfolio is diverse. It has, obviously, its stake in the domestic mobile business. The now separately listed mobile business that has been absolutely core. And a lot of investors have invested in SoftBank because of the stability that this telecoms business offers. The 2006 Vodafone Japan deal, that's a key moment because it creates a ballast to keep the company stable. <laughs> almost as important as buying Vodafone's Japan business, was the decision to be the launch carrier for the Apple iPhone. You have you know, this outsider offering an American phone to Japanese consumers, and the whole question of whether Japanese consumers would dump the Japanese product in favor of an American product, seemed like everything he does, it was a gamble and it obviously paid off enormously. The underlying theme, of course, is SoftBank's investment into the future of technology. The current state of the puzzle, it's in flux because one of the key pieces is in the process of being sold, which is ARM. If you asked me four or five years ago what SoftBank is, I would say SoftBank is a company with ARM at the core and Masa running around the world telling everyone that this company and its chip design will be the basis upon which the Internet of Things will be built off of, all these connected devices. He didn't have the money to pay for ARM. And so he needed to find people who would put money in to back the transaction. What he does discover is that there's a bunch of capital in the Middle East that just wants to invest with him. And that's how we get the Vision Fund. The Vision Fund launched in 2017 as the world's largest technology fund. The largest investors in the fund were the Sovereign Wealth Fund of Abu Dhabi. Saudi Arabia was also a big investor. It was really a marriage of minds between Mohammed bin Salman and Masayoshi Son. On the one hand, a young authoritarian leader who's in a hurry to transform a society and wean it off oil, tech obsessed, but is very concerned about looking like dumb money on the global stage. So in comes Masa and says, look, I'm the world's best technology investor and I have ARM and I can see the future of connected devices and you're trying to build these mega cities in Saudi Arabia. Let's do this together. Fast forward to today. ARM's operations under SoftBank basically stunk. The high-tech stuff, the stuff that was the future, is basically a cash-guzzling, cash-burning disaster. If he's nothing else, he is a consummate salesman. He got asked once, so how did you convince Mohammed bin Salman to give you $45 billion in an hour? And he says, no, $45 billion in 45 minutes, $1 billion every minute. You've got so much money in a fund. You're not just buying a little part of that industry. You're buying the future of that industry. He's got $100 billion with which he can say, OK, OK, maybe the market was one day going to come to the conclusion that this company was going to be the dominant player. But I'm going to leapfrog all of that and just make this company the dominant player by pouring so much money into it. What if he says, OK, if you don't take my money, I'm going to go give quadruple that amount to your rival. It's not all lovey-dovey. People don't see that brutal side of Masa. He used capital as a weapon with the Vision Fund. It poured money into various startups from Uber, Didi, Oyo, Slack, sent shockwaves through Silicon Valley and brought the valuations of technology companies to new heights. They wanted to basically be more effective at investing than Sequoia or Benchmark, the brand name venture capital funds. But it's really a bunch of ex-Deutsche Bank traders who are running the show. And so what do they know about venture investing? So the first 
few years of the Vision Fund are marked by like enormous mistakes. These companies weren't making money and when it came time for them to do IPOs, investors weren't convinced. We had this crisis at WeWork that really raised questions in the Vision Fund strategy. A office work sharing company sold into this incredible hype machine and the person feeding that hype of Adam Newman, the founder, was Masa-san. I don't think he's necessarily the greatest judge of character. He falls very hard in love with other entrepreneurs. I think if any of us sat in a room with Adam Newman, we'd probably be like, I'd probably tone down the crazy because this is starting to look nuts. Masa says, no, be more crazy. And after the pandemic struck, it also showed the vulnerability of the Vision Fund with some of the major bets like Uber and Didi being hit. You know, that led to SoftBank suffering its biggest ever annual loss. But if you think about a venture portfolio, they're in 88 companies, maybe slightly more. Their point is some of them will be duds, some of them will be okay, and some of them may be Alibaba-level potential, maybe not the full Alibaba. And as long as they get enough of those, it doesn't really matter what the other stuff does. Now you've got people so deeply involved in, in some area of development, particularly the Vision Fund again, that they've become their own piece, but are never more powerful than, than him at the center. We recruited this Google man called Nikesh Arora, Indian, very successful. Nikesh wanted Masa to pay down his debt, take less risks. These two had a spectacular falling out. At the same time, another Indian whose Masa had recruited, Rajiv Misra from Deutsche Bank. His rise really begins and takes off as Nikesh's plummets. He brings in a guy called Sago. He is uh, Goldman Sachs in Japan, super cautious. And so you've got Deutsche and Goldman Sachs characters now merged. You've got a lot of complexity around everyone second-guessing what everyone else is up to. Another character was Marcelo Clau, who was recruited into SoftBank and then put in charge of Sprint and is now playing a major role across the portfolio. The Wild West is how the Vision Fund's been described internally. He likes a little bit of chaos and he likes a little bit of tension. It's a pirate ship and it's full of pirates and they're all aggressive traders. And what you have is basically Masa as the ringleader of this pirate ship. They're not coordinated, they don't get along, everyone is briefing against each other. That tension is all held in place when he's there. But then I think we do come back to this question of how long Masayoshi Son is going to be in charge of this and whether SoftBank survives him not being at the center of that puzzle. Right before the arm deal, Nikesh leaves. And this is the person that was the anointed successor. Masa is now 63 years old. It doesn't seem like he has a successor because so much of this company is associated with his vision. That also creates a big risk for SoftBank. The whole structure would collapse if something happened to Masa. Someone can make a play for the run for the top. It's not the end of the world, but it's pretty close. If you have a company that is run with such obvious deference to one person's views, you've got governance issues. You've got questions about whether the board is a real board, whether it can stop him doing something that's manifestly insane. 2020 has been a crazy year for SoftBank. Masa became very exposed, whose entire wealth is effectively in SoftBank shares. When the stock of SoftBank starts going down, the banks who, with whom he's borrowed get very nervous. So Masa, in the middle of March, went into some crisis meetings with his key executives and Elliot, the hedge fund which has an activist stake in, in SoftBank and has been calling for it to do share buybacks. The assumption was that Elliot would end up in a nasty clash with Son, but ultimately they wouldn't get anywhere. Lo and behold, the buybacks begin. Maybe 
the investors are getting somewhere. Maybe governance is changing with this company. It triggered this massive asset disposal, which was initially designed to carry out share buybacks and also to reduce debt to, and to restore investor confidence. Arm gets agreed to be sold to NVIDIA in a $40 billion deal. You have the Japanese telecoms unit. They announce a plan to bring down their control to raise money. They have Sprint, which they've merged with T-Mobile, another part of the jigsaw puzzle. And he's one of the great He's very politically savvy. He can strike up a relationship with most of the world's leaders, whether it's Donald Trump or Vladimir Putin. And from the moment Trump was elected president, Massa was courting him. He needed the Sprint deal to get through. Massa goes to Trump Tower and says to him, I'm going to create 50,000 new jobs in America. I'm going to invest $50 billion. U.S. regulators finally allowed Sprint and T-Mobile to merge. He had cracked the code of Trump. Now it's flush with money, so it has $80 billion in cash. One thing you should never expect Masa to do is to have cash in the bank account and not spend it. And that's how you get to the other piece of the jigsaw puzzle, that Nasdaq whale story. Towards the end of August 2020, we started to notice some quite strange stuff going on in US stock markets and particularly in tech stocks. The Nasdaq index, the composite and the Nasdaq 100 were both up about 12-13% over the month. Tesla was up 70 odd percent and Amazon and Google and all these stocks had had an absolutely blistering run. The options market is a place where investors can effectively bet on future stock price movements or try and hedge themselves against them. The talk was of a whale, a huge account, people couldn't figure out who it was, that was just gobbling up these options. Our sort of ringing around on this led us to SoftBank. Our instincts were saying, someone's got this wrong. But to our surprise, it turned out to be right. Masayoshi Son says it's actually in line with this vision because it's investing in the future of AI and he believes that, you know, the big US giants like Facebook, Amazon, and Google, they're all kind of the front runners in the AI race. But obviously investors don't always agree with that idea. So the next day, shares in SoftBank itself fell pretty heavily, took about $9 billion off the market cap of SoftBank that day. The strategy was being directed specifically by Masason. This came from the top, and that tells you a lot about Masason as a, as a character. He's not afraid to take the market completely by surprise. He's not afraid to make extremely aggressive bets in markets that he doesn't normally play in. I mean, veterans in the equities options market were telling us they'd never seen anything like the scale of the bets that were going on here. It started to look at a certain point like SoftBank was morphing into a huge and very aggressive hedge fund. This is not something that sat easily with the market. He doesn't really respect the stock market. He doesn't really respect stock market investors, but he needs it because he's so aggressive that he needs the sources of capital. To be risk addicted and to buy at the rate he buys really means that he borrows more than almost anyone we know. And what you have is a company that constantly changes because He's constantly experimenting. It's impossible to second guess. You never know where SoftBank are going to crop up next. You never know what market they might start dabbling in, in huge size and with very aggressive strategies. A few weeks down the road or even a few days down the road, SoftBank could have another massive transformative deal. And we'll be talking about a new definition for SoftBank. Kind of depends on you know, where that vision that Masayoshi Son has next. He's a gambler and he takes big risks and he's undoubtedly successful. I really don't see a scenario where Masa hoards cash. Ultimately, we come back to the casino 
And the question is, are you going to take your chips off the table and walk away, or are you going to push it all out and go all in? Everything in his career suggests that he's always all in.